Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, hello, hello. Who, who's, hello. who is that on my Skype screen, stranger? <laughs> it is it is Kerry here on your Skype screen today. And on your Skype screen, it's Angela. <laughs> Perfect. In case, in case you've forgotten. I'm glad that we know who each other are. It's a good start. I know, I know, because no one else does. So uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we haven't, you know, we don't get to see each other in person very often anymore, so it's easy to forget. Although we did have a distance picnic, we did in Crystal Palace uh, about a week ago, that ended in an absolute down. Well, it didn't end actually because we were so def- like we were just so like we're staying. We haven't seen each other for ages. <laughs> so. I picked up my picnic blanket and just put it over my head and was just texting under my blanket. Kerry braved it and sat as the downpour continued. Yeah. Well, I was basically being stubborn because it started raining a little bit and you were all, you were all very sensibly, like, maybe we should go under a tree. And I was like, no, it'll pass in like a second. It'll be fine. So then felt the need to defiantly just sit there and, and get absolutely drenched. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just, well, I sat with a blanket over my head. Paula went under a tree and then then decided to go a little bit further into a bush and do a wee while it was raining <laughs> um, to cover her tracks, really, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was really nice. It was really nice seeing everyone. We haven't seen the band since we did a session for When the Lights Go Out, which was the weekend before lockdown, right? Yeah, yeah. So, we, yeah, it was the been... first time since lockdown we've all been together. We've sort yeah. of seen one or other of each other right but we haven't all been together no. before that no exactly so uh, but it, it didn't feel weird it just actually felt really normal yeah I was I've expected to feel I don't know a bit more like I hadn't seen you all for ages but it didn't really feel like that it was just like well, we, oh hi <laughs> well it's exactly it, it yeah it was well we've seen each other on screen loads but it just yeah it didn't although you know I did actually feel a bit weird about oh should I should I be doing this and then just thought, fuck it, yeah. <laughs> so it just <laughs> I passed mean, very yeah, quickly. I mean, it was per- we were perfectly within within the rules. Yes. But um, yeah. Oh, anyway, for people who are listening, this this is a podcast. You haven't just stumbled onto someone's Skype call, hacked into my computer or anything. This is uh, Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles, which is a show about the legends of rock and pop. We each come armed with a story each week. And I think I'm going to make this the last time that I explain, because this is episode 15, which I've got something to tell you about the episode numbers in a minute. This is officially episode 15. Is it Um, actually episode 15? It is episode 15. I'm going to explain what I mean in a moment. And I just feel that for those that regularly listen, they're probably going, skip, skip, skip. (laughs) I don't need to hear this. Um, I suppose I suppose it's just in case somebody come for whatever bizarre reason decides to start listening to episode fifteen is the first. Then one. it will be like a, a crazy journey that they go on. <laughs> what is this? What am they'll I listening never know, to? They'll never know what's coming next. What's going exactly, to be around the corner? Exactly. Um, and there there are show notes. I don't know. Might might give it away. What it's about? It's yeah. Just some. <laughs> well, maybe you know, the, some rebellious human who doesn't read the notes and just 
clicks play and just take takes their chances that's, but then i suppose you know they you know they true. don't necessarily need the explanation if they're that reckless with their listening and how they spend their time so this is the the reckless music fans podcast i like that that's, that's totally... only, only only after episode 15 because up yeah. until that point we explained at the start but after that point if you're reckless this is for you to- totally going in the description of the, the show. Um, but yes, I noticed when I was up uploading the last episode, um, and keep in mind, when I'm doing the uploads and posting the notes in, I am totally sober and I do go through and check everything, but clearly not because we had two episode 10s. Did we? So I had to go through and edit and resubmit them all. So uh. now my like, bloody Apple thing, it's going... There's two episode 11s. It's like, no, there isn't. There isn't. <laughs> it, it, I've been told it will sort itself out. But um, yeah, so this is episode 15. Can you believe it? Wow. This is an impressive commitment from us. I know. And I, I do wonder, I, I, well, I'd like it to continue after lockdown because we did actually start it before lockdown. So it yeah, wasn't a lockdown not, thing. It's not, yeah, it's not something we did because of lockdown, right? So I think we will keep it going, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, um, it's certainly making me explore music that I've loved over the years and, and probably not loved in, in more recent times, but then also discover um, new music and be a bit more on, like, scouting for stuff. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's been quite good. And I suppose with, with that, um, maybe we should tell people or tell each other um, so I'll whisper over here to the other people that are listening. And no, so that was a really awful, awful, um, funny joke. It was a pretty standard Angela joke. If we're being honest, I know you're just it? sitting there smiling, resting your head in your hand, just going, just let her go, let her go. <laughs> it's kind of my favourite thing to do when you start doing it. I just try to stay know. quiet and see how much you'll keep digging. <laughs> so this week, I'm going to cover one of the most dynamic soul singers of all time, who. I absolutely love. I've wanted to do her story um, for a few weeks now. I've got a list of people I want to cover, and she's certainly one with little love hearts around. Um, I'm going to attempt to do the story because she's such a legend, and I hope I do it justice, Etta James. And I'm going to play new music. Uh, my new music artist, uh, like my new discovery, if, is uh, Lilith I. Very cool. And uh, I knew that you were doing Etta James. And so I uh, I just kind of wanted to do somebody who had been influenced by her. So I'm going to do Janis Joplin. Oh, well done. Good choice. Good choice. Who who equally was, was somebody who had sort of been in, in the back of my mind or on my list to do for a while. And it felt like the right time to break her out. Um, and I've Is got that... some... Sorry, go on. <laughs> go on, say it. Say what you're going to say. It's the husky voice, man. It's just, it's like, how many cigarettes has she, did she smoke, and how <laughs> well, much whiskey did she drink? Jesus, man. We'll, but we'll, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, we'll we'll get into all of that. But um, yeah, and then I've got some new music uh, breaking. It might be the it might be the first time we've broken outside of UK bands, possibly with our new music. I'm not sure, but I've know. got. I've got a band uh, who I knew when I lived in Montreal um, called Jatentia, who uh, I'm going to play you a song from today. Ah, very good, very good. So um, who's going to go first? 
Um, well, I feel like it will make sense if, if you go first to talk about Etta James, since I'm then sort of talking about somebody who was then influenced by her, although they were sort of around at the same time and potentially maybe influenced each other a little bit in some respects. I don't know. But anyway, let's... Um, sure. I reckon you should go first. Okay, so research for Etta James came from a number of different sites and there's some great videos on YouTube that are kind of short snippets of biographies in case you want to know more about Etta James. It's a really easy way to kind of digest her story, but there is a lot more to it. And I'll put some references of a book I read about Etta James um, and also various various sites. And there's, there's lots of interviews online, not just with her, but with other artists. There's like a whole wealth of information there. And obviously Wikipedia as well. And I know, I know we joke about Wikipedia, but it is actually a really important site for information. So before I start, just say, if you do have some spare cash, and I know everyone's asking for money, but if you do want to donate to Wikipedia, please do, because we wouldn't have a podcast without it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so born Jamesetta Hawkins on the 25th of January in 1938 in LA to a 14-year-old mother called Dorothy Hawkins. Etta never knew who her father was, and her mother was was pretty kind of, you know, vague about that um, and, and wouldn't share any details. But then also Etta's mother was pretty absent from Etta's childhood, and she sort of bounced from foster parent to foster parent from an early age. The most notable being Mama Lou as, as, as a caregiver for, for little Etta. Mama Lou noticed Etta's interest in songs and encouraged her to take voice lessons and piano lessons. She was clearly talented and started singing gospel at church. She was so popular she became a complete draw card for the St Paul Baptist Church in South Central Los Angeles. And she was only five years old at the time. Um, but, you know, she where there were empty seats, they were suddenly full you know, where people would just come from miles around to hear this this wonderful little girl singing gospel um, songs at church. And the sad thing is the news was spreading about this very talented girl and Etta's mother never bothered to come and see her perform once at church, even though she heard great things about her young daughter. And Etta's stepdad, Jesse, a.k.a. Sarge, um, swore he would never set foot in a church he didn't believe in god and all of that but he soon changed his tune when he got wind of the profit potential from this little girl so he soon started showing up so essentially etta's parents were still around when she was growing up but didn't really take charge of her upbringing at all they just kind of dipped in and out as and when it, it suited them so basically Sarge went along to the church and he demanded they start paying Etta, but they refused. Uh, so he threatened them with, with removing her from the church and taking her to a rival church, should there really be rival churches, but you know what I mean. Um, and, and they were like, well, go on then. You know, it's, <laughs> church is church. But um, yeah, so they sort of called his bluff. So he took her along to another church, but... Etta refused to sing. She she could only feel ready to sing if she felt passionate and emotional about something, even at a young age, and she certainly wouldn't ever sing on demand. Um, so that fell through. And just to give a bit more financial context as to the sort of money we're talking about that singers were being 
being played. In an interview with um, the singer Ruth Brown, she talks about being the eldest of seven kids and the time came when she would have to kind of go to work and help the family financially being the eldest. And she got a gig singing at a wedding and they paid her $30. Now, that might not sound much to you and I, but um, but back then that was more than her father earned in a week. Um, so I suppose you can see where Etta's family's greedy eyes kind of <laughs> saw this sort of stuff because Ruth Brown was was a similar sort of age to, to Etta. Um, and I'm sure if you were a white girl, you probably got paid even more than that. But um, anyway, so their, their kind of greed kicked in as they were seeing the sort of possibilities of where of where this would, would go. Anyway, this kind of the whole singing church was the beginning of Etta's journey in music. Um, she would listen to the likes of Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Diana Washington, Ruth Brown, who she absolutely adored. And like I mentioned, they were a similar age. Ruth kind of started to become um, more of a prominent force in music before Etta did. So that was quite an inspirational thing to to kind of witness and, and see that a girl like her could could go on and do and do great things. Um, but going back just slightly, when Etta was 12, Mama Lou suffered a stroke and it wasn't long after this that she died and that was kind of you know Etta lost the one person who was the closest thing she was going to have to a mother and a caregiver but her mum her birth mother uh came back on the scene after Mama Lou died and uh, decided she was going to move Etta and herself to San Francisco but on en route kind of lost interest in that and then left Etta with her brother I want to say her brother, Etta's mother's brother, so Etta's uncle, right? Um, who had no interest in in kids. Um, so you know that was where Etta was left. She was taken away from the church that was the one familiar comfort that she had. Then she lost her primary caregiver, moved into her uncle's house, and so you know what ended up happening was um, she transformed into a rough, resentful street girl. She skipped school, she drank booze, um, she got tattoos, she got into fights. She was basically a general sort of handful at that time. But she also formed a group with her friends and penned a response to a popular song at the time which caught the attention of band leader and talent scout Johnny Otis in 1954. Johnny Otis worked with a number of artists, one of which was Esther Phillips, um, who's also an incredible singer. And she was discovered at just age 13. So she was very young. And if you listen to those recordings, wow, that voice, you would not think that that came from a 13-year-old. But anyway, he says in an interview, he, he talks about how dangerous it was touring during those times. And he talks about an occasion, just one of many, he said, that they pulled over at a gas station and Esther went to use the restroom. The next thing Johnny knows is that a white man was pointing a gun in his belly and really kicking off. And for those that don't know what kicking off is, losing his cool. <laughs> losing his rag. <laughs> um, I, enjoy, I enjoy the fact that you felt yeah, the need to translate that. I know, that. <laughs> I know. Um, because Esther essentially was so angry because this little black girl, Esther, had used a white woman's toilet. Translation, restroom for those US singers. Um <laughs> Singers? Listeners? Or did I say listeners? Oh, my brain's melting. You, no, you, you did say singers. Singers. Not just for singers, just US people in general, I suppose. Anyway, um, so Johnny invited Etta and the group to come and sing for him after a show. They were a bit sceptical, 
at first when when they got the call. It was like, so these old dudes want to invite us to a hotel. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, so she, they had street smarts. They weren't innocent kids. But anyway, Johnny got on the phone. He spoke to Etta and he paid for them to get a cab over to the hotel. And they they basically went up to his room. There were a lot of other people there. It wasn't anything like that. And he he basically asked Etta to sing, but she still felt uncomfortable singing on demand. It just didn't feel right to her. So she sang in the bathroom with her back to everyone. Anyway, needless to say, Otis loved it and asked her to join the tour. Um, but, of course, he then asked, well, how old are you? And they were like, we're 18. He's like, mm, <laughs> really? They yeah. were actually 15. Yeah. And so, you know, um, they were asked to go and get permission slips, notes from their parents. What naive times. I know, it's nuts. Naive. I remember being a kid. Sorry, this is an aside. Um, and I remember my mum would just give me a note to to just go. This is this is like late eighties, maybe a note to go over. And I was probably about six or something ridiculous. Like like I would never let Beth go to the shop for me at the age of six. <laughs> she's only two and a half right now, and I'm like she's not leaving the house until she's like twenty or something. <laughs> I know what goes on out there. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so you know, I used to go to the shop with a note and buy cigarettes. For, That's insane for my mum and dad. <laughs> uh, you you could just literally get a note, and people would yeah, trust yeah. that. It's crazy. But anyway, same situation. Although I don't think anyone really believed it, but they got notes from their parents, and uh, they they joined they joined the tour. That's crazy. So that's you know. It's, fantastic really so cool um it is amazing that that, like kind of just insane at such a young age like especially after what you were just saying about like the you know the dangers of touring especially you know as a black person at that time yeah um it's just pretty nuts isn't it i mean who i mean the sad thing is did anyone really care what happened to etta yeah that's that's kind of what i mean i suppose the fact that they Obviously, to them at that age, it would be like super cool to be to be allowed yeah. to do that. But it, in reality, I think there is sort of a a lack of care there, is in a way, you know, yeah. for them to be allowed to do that. No, I completely agree. Anyway, they were paid ten pounds a night. Ten pounds? No, they weren't because it wasn't in Britain. It was in the US. They paid ten dollars, um, and uh, Otis changed their name to Peaches, the Peaches, as a group. Um, and convinced James Zetta to flip her name to get the stage name Etta James. Mm. So that's that's how she got her name. I see. So their first record, Roll With Me, Henry, later changed to Wallflower, was released as Etta, as Etta James rather than The Peaches. The, the, the other people in The Peaches were the backing vocalists, but it was very much put out as Etta James. Um, and it very quickly prompted a ban on American radio as it was too sexual. Um, but it did reach the number one position in the R&B charts. But like so many black artists with songs that were fantastic, along comes a white singer, Georgia Gibbs, picks up the song and takes it into the mainstream charts. For sure. Which I can only imagine how frustrating that must that must feel. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so it's, what was the problem with the song? So the word roll 
indicates like falling around, rolling around with someone. Right. And it was a really kind of vul- seen as a really vulgar word in the 50s. Um, roll. Yeah, roll. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Roll with me, Henry, which is like basically let's have a little, you know, a <laughs> little bit of a tumble. A little bit of a tumble. A little bit of a lying down and uh, oh god a little bit of a fumble you know anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah, i feel like you're writing your own terrible song like i'm writing a really awful song i realize um but but anyway yeah so it's ridiculous but um it got banned and so the white singer georgia gibbs took the song changed the lyrics to be more fitting to accepted standards and called the song dance with me henry and apparently sold over four million copies of that well, um, I mean, Etta was happy that it was a success, that the yeah. song was a hit, but she was also absolutely enraged that another artist got to perform on the Ed Sullivan show while she was performing in dives. I mean, mm. it's, it is absolutely outrageous. Um, but, you know, it wasn't fair. In fact, it was this damn right disgusting, but it was a common theme of the times. Yeah, exactly. This it's- happened... It's disgusting, but it it is just what happened over and over, and it's relevant to me talking about Janis Joplin shortly as well. You know, um, she equally it, had yeah. hits with with a lot of songs that were originally by by black artists, and she had a lot more success with them. Yeah, so it's you know, and another thing. So I suppose for the times, it wasn't unique to black artists. On this next bit, that I'm talking about, but so Otis took most of her earnings, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the 14,000 um, in royalties, in writing royalties, that were Esther, Esther, Etta, God, Etta, were put in a trust that she would receive when she was 21. Now, that might sound like thinking back, oh, a lot of money for those for that time, but if she only got a fraction of the, the royalties, imagine what this Otis dude got. If that's yeah, a for fraction, sure. You know, um, and she certainly couldn't access it at a time she she needed it. Yeah. Um, and she wasn't 18, so she was 15. Wow. So, you know, she had a bit of time to wait for that. Uh, anyway, when she launched her solo career, um, All I Could Do Is Cry charted at number two in the R&B charts. The song was a real kind of, how to explain it, like a sort of doo-wop feel, rhythm and blues type song. It's about Etta James watching her ex go and marry someone else. And it's kind of like the the pain she's feeling and the loneliness. And it's all there in the words, her voice, the music. It's got like a real beautiful, nostalgic, longing feel to it that I'm sure a lot of people could relate to having lost something or or someone. It's just got that that real late at night. I'm here alone. I'm going to open the bottle of Jägermeister. <laughs> I was going to say, this is all feeling far too personal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not alone. I have a wife and a child. Um, Moving on. (laughs) It's it's raw sounding and it's something that that people could could connect to. She's got this kind of husky voice and and the emotion kind of just screams from her gut in in not just this song, in in all of the stuff that she does. And I'll I'll pop this on our Spotify playlist so you can you can hear it because we do have official Spotify official makes me sound like we're employed by spotify official to our show not paid for by spotify <laughs> i'd like that but that's not true um so basically we'll group like four shows together and we've got all the music 
from those from those those shows. So this will be the next playlist that we create, and we'll just keep adding music to that one until it gets to about thirty songs, and then move on because it's too long. Otherwise, you didn't need to know that detail. Anyway, um, <laughs> another hit record for her was "Good Rocking Daddy." That was her biggest hit from that that time. And it was around then that um, when I said she went to a solo career, it was at this point was when she actually went solo. It was like the original Peaches left the group. So she was kind of like officially then a solo artist, even though it was she kind kind of already was. Yeah, exactly. But that was kind of like the official moment. But in 1960, was a really, really important time for Etta. For Etta. Um, she signed with Chess Records and her career just absolutely rocketed. She quickly became the label's first major female star. However, she only ever received $10,000 in 14 years from the label as they kept their artists happy with Cadillacs. Hence the film Cadillac Records from 2008, where Etta is played mm. by Beyonce. Mm. And Etta was not particularly happy about Beyonce, let's just say. There was a... She says she joked about it later, but she kind of said she wanted to whip her ass or something like that. Like She just wasn't <laughs> happy at all. But it was also a, a time when she wasn't well, but I'll, I'll talk about that, that a little bit later. Um, so her debut album, At Last, was released and noted for its varied style. There's doo-wop, there's jazz, there's rhythm and blues. It's a really impressive record, so I really do recommend that that people listen to it. It's a beautiful record, to say the least, and it contains hits such as At Last, Trust in Me, All I Could Do Is Cry, and Something's Got a Hold of Me, on me, sorry. And, of course, really big famous one for the UK was I Just Want to Make Love to You. It was featured on some kind of advert that I can't remember what now. But, um, <laughs> yeah... Yeah, no, I mean, Etta James is, I mean, certainly songs like At Last, I think that's played mm. at a huge amount of weddings. Yeah. In, actually, not played at mine, I was about to say including mine, but we had, um, we hired like a kind of retro vintage pub for our wedding and we discovered in one of the areas uh, um, in Glastonbury, so not on any main, main stage, it was like in, in the Shangri-La area, I think, there was like this kind of swing band with a difference. I don't think just calling them a swing band does them justice. I, I There was like tattooed ladies playing trumpets and I don't know, really cool. Anyway, they played like <laughs> loads of um, like Etta James, Ruth Brown, loads of, loads of really cool stuff that me and Julia absolutely love. And we booked them to play, to play at our wedding. And uh, yeah, no, they didn't play it last, but my point was, I'm sure that features at many weddings. Um, it's a great, it's, I love it. It's a great song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stop going off on sidebars now and get on with this. Anyway, by the mid 60s, Etta, sadly, was addicted to heroin. She was da- jailed twice for passing bad checks. She was arrested for possession. And by the time she was 36, she was in a psychiatric hospital for about 17 months. And she says in an interview that she... She realised that something was going badly wrong in her life or things had gone too far when she was asked to give a blowjob to an 80-year-old man in exchange for heroin. Um, and would be, would be a low point, wouldn't it? It will, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, 
She'd battled this addiction for three decades before mm. becoming clean in the 80s. And, you know, she also struggled with her weight. And at one point after coming out of rehab, she reached that kind of her largest point of being like 24 stone. And she just really wasn't a happy person throughout all of this. But she continued to release records. Like, no matter what was going on, it was like record coming out, record coming out. You just mm. look at discography. She's got so many albums. It's unbelievable. Um, and in 1969, Etta married Artis Mills and later had two sons who would go on to perform with her on tour, um, which, you know, I read an interview with one of her sons um, and it sounds like the childhood they had was, when I say not too dissimilar, it was nowhere near, I don't think, as bad as, as Etta's with her mum, but there were certainly periods, obviously, when she was in rehab and just not around for her kids and not, and when she was not actually just being able to do um, what what they needed, really. Sure. But they still had a really great relationship, and that bond just got stronger and stronger the older they they got. Um, but yeah, I just I just think it's really really quite sad. Anyway, so I'm kind of coming to the end of this. Uh, Etta's career had many ups and downs. After a dip in popularity. Etta James returned to the charts in the early 1970s with the hit Tell Mama. She was the opening act for the Rolling Stones in the late 70s and early 80s. She was one of the only African-American singers in the late 50s that was able to span many musical genres, including gospel, jazz, R&B and rock and roll. She helped bridge the gap between rock and roll and rhythm and blues. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993 and the Blues Hall of Fame in 2001. She carried on creating music throughout her whole life, from the age of five right up until till she died. She was a musician. She never retired. She got a Grammy for both her 2003 album, Let's Roll, and the 2004 Blues to the Bone works. Um, her last album was called The Dreamer that was released in November 2011, just two months before her death on January the 20th, 2012. And she died from leukaemia at the age of 73. And I suppose what I want to say about her is people loved her for her honesty and grit. She had this raunchy, husky voice that drew you in. It grabbed hold of you and took you on a kind of like roller coaster ride, if you like, of love, joy, pain, sorrow, inequality. And and it all had real meaning. It wasn't fake stories. They were personal to her. And when she sat, sang, you hear her records, it is, it's like when her voice breaks at certain points, it's like with pure emotion. It's not faked. Mm. It's like so real. I know that sounds tacky, keeping it real, but it, no, it's not though. It's I think it is wonderful. Yeah, and it's what um, you know sets some of these artists apart. You know, the the artists yeah. that I mean, it's it's interesting. There's lots of of things that are, are very similar in in what has been said about Janis Joplin as well to sort of what you're saying. You know, and what people say about Etta James is this idea that she was so in touch with her her true sort of emotions and that the way that that came out in how she she sung and how she expressed in the music because Janis Joplin wrote very few songs actually um 
almost all of her songs that she's known for were covers and that you know that's another potentially problematic thing you can go into but for example one of she she uh you mentioned tell mama at the end um there yeah. which was a song that janice joplin covered mm-hmm. um but um yeah it was more to do with her her voice and yeah just similarly that that thing of being really in touch with your your emotions and really able to express that um through singing i think just is what sets these artists aside and elevates them you know well exactly i mean it's incredibly powerful and i think it's a reason why her records resonate with so many people across so many generations um which is why a lot of these albums from the past remain classics and are as Mm. important then as they are as they are today uh yeah i won't hear a bad word said about s james ever so, um, yeah. I don't I don't have any to say so that's good no but she had some bad words to say about a few people um so like I say like Beyonce um she wasn't too happy about that her son did say that it was at the time when they realized that she like she was getting quite aggressive and things like this and she was actually diagnosed with um Alzheimer's disease right so that explains some of her her outbursts that she had at that time. But even going back before that, um, she she wasn't happy about Janis Joplin. Yeah. Um, work. She felt that even her stage performance that that Janis was just mimicking her was just taking her her style and music from other people that that weren't given those opportunities to be on those main stages and and be in those places and use that to their advantage. I'm not saying that that's that's what Janis Joplin did, I think, but I you think, can understand <clears throat> yeah. the, the, the uh, look back then everyone was covering everyone's songs. Like it wasn't just, but, but that was a real problem with the yeah, inequality. No, for sure. I, I think that there's, there's a, a certain, there's definitely some legitimacy to, to that way of thinking, um, you know, and, it just it, it raises that question doesn't it of because you know the reality of music is that it constantly kind of copies and borrows from the past yeah um you know artists in in the way that they write music and the way that they perform and everything um and you know where do you draw the line between sort of you know taking something and and making it your own and to a sort of inappropriate level of appropriation you know it it's a hard line to draw, I think. There's there's a really great book called Will Pop it Eat Itself. Um, I can't remember who it's by. It's on my shelf, so I'll put I'll put details of it in the show notes. But it talks about the regurgitation of all music and how nothing is unique, nothing yeah. is original. It's impossible for something to be original because everyone is influenced by all kinds of things. I mean, you certainly get artists that stand out as, as being different for their time because other people aren't doing that. But when you dig, you'll find some yeah, of course. Know, borrowed, unintentionally borrowed, yeah, yeah, exactly. perhaps, um, and stuff. But can I just end on a really nice yeah. fact, actually, which I hope this is true. I hope this is true. This mm-hmm. was from, from the site Song Fact or Fact, so, no, Song Fact would make more sense. I'll post a link to it anyway. Um, it says, apparently, while Etta James was in rehab, when she disappeared from the music scene for a while in the 70s, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones wrote her a letter promising her 
a spot as their opening act when she was ready to return to music. That's and cool. I just thought that was really lovely. And, you know, I mean, it could be true because she did, when she recovered from rehab and came back with a sock, she did go on, to, she did have that support slot. Oh, so, so it probably I did happen. Is, I hope yeah. that isn't, because I think that's really nice. For sure. I think a lot of, a lot of um, artists probably don't consider anything out of their own uh, Well, yeah, and I mean, sphere, you know, say. The, the Rolling Stones are, are another band that... Um, you know, were undoubtedly influenced by Etta James as well. So I feel like that's, you know, a yeah. way for them to sort of acknowledge that to some extent, isn't it? And to yeah marry those things together on stage, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, there's some great interviews of Keith Richards online and uh, you can you can you can watch these. And again, I'll share anything we mention on the show. We'll put we'll put links links to. But he he does talk about. Etta James, Bessie Smith, Robert Johnson, who we mentioned in in a podcast, uh, it was the man who sold his soul. I mean, he he talks about about the, uh, Sister Rosetta. He mentions as people that were heavily, you know, huge influences on on him in his playing style and writing. So, uh, yeah, that's the thing. I think. I mean, you know. Uh... I think as long as you acknowledge and, and you give credit to to those influences as a performer, at least you're you're not doing anything wrong. I think the issue is more with the system, isn't it? That gave more value yeah. to it when it was being performed by white performers compared to when it was being performed by black performers. And I suppose we're also thinking of a time. And look, I'm really not taking away. I think it was disgusting what happened, but it was also a time where a lot of people didn't write their own music. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a band would would do a song and then a rival band would do their own version of that song and, and it was all royalties to, to the writers unless the bands had wrote, written those songs themselves. And that's that's that was down to the, the white boys who ran who ran a lot of those labels. Yeah, and even more so than that, it wasn't even, you know, songs weren't even necessarily written by a band or artist in the first place. They were just written by that's what I'm saying, is it a songwriter. Exactly, um, it was down to the songwriter a, and the label. Yeah, who worked for a label and they were just, you know, given out to artists and then another artist might have had a bigger hit with it. But And yeah. over time, artists got more rights and actually discovered as in, well, actually, no, we, we don't want to do other people's songs. We want to write our own songs and actually yeah. earn some, some decent royalties from, I feel, from yeah. that. I feel like it was almost more, from an artist's perspective, it was more about their performance at that time right rather than necessarily their yeah. sort of songwriting ability whereas now maybe that's changed a little bit but yes shall we hear some new music yes let's before i've mentioned janice Joplin a little bit but before we deep dive in let's uh let's listen to some new music so uh i have a song for you today by a band called jatentia who are an indie pop rock duo from montreal in canada um and i lived in montreal for a couple of years uh right before joining bug eye actually and um i got to know them a little bit i saw them play for the first time they played i sort of already knew of them um and i loved them for their for their vocal harmonies especially it's kind of one of the things that really stood out about them for me and uh they played at a venue uh that was just sort of like down the road from where i lived in montreal so i went and um, kind of introduced myself to them afterwards and had a little chat. And they are two of the most lovely people in the world and actually play a small part in our Bug Eye story, which you don't even know, Angela. 
because they no. they uh they let me use their rehearsal space when I was learning all the songs uh, ready to come back and join Bug Eye. God bless them, even though I'm an atheist. <laughs> so anyway, so they are a husband and wife team who create upbeat, insightful songs with a highly emotional concept, combining catchy melodies, rich 1950s style harmonies with lo-fi garage rock angst, which is, uh, I think, a very good description of them. Yeah. Um, their music strives to bridge gaps between internal and external worlds, linking themes such as self-discovery, determination and empathy to the societal struggles of overconsumption and environmental degradation. So um, their album, uh, Periscope, is came out last year um, and is on Spotify. And the song I'm going to play is off of that album. And I highly suggest people to go to Spotify and listen to the whole album because I love it more every single time I listen to it. And has a lot of sort of similar themes to to our album. I sort of noticed, you know, it's to do with overconsumption and environmental degradation and everything. So this song that I'm going to play is called Easy Way Out. And it is about the desire to break the cycle of consumerism. So here it is.
So that was Easy Way Out by Jatentia. What did you think, Angela? I love the intro to that. I think it's kind of, it's the guitar when it comes in. It's got that really nice kind of low sort of but clean sound of mm-hmm. guitar that's smooth, really groovy. Um, and then I, t- I took a note down on it that like around one and a half minutes in, it goes into sort of, it almost has a Bell and Sebastian yeah. feel. I can see it. that in that uh yeah i quite i quite like it i quite like it yeah so when um if you see them obviously there's more sort of on the recording but if you see them live um david uh plays guitar and sings and um rose plays plays drums and sings and when i when i met them um she was just teaching herself to to play drums um because she wanted to do it um for for the band so she's like quite recently sort of taught herself to to play drums and it's the easiest instrument as well to play isn't it so you know (laughs) (laughs) let's get back to the drummer perry's a drummer for those that don't know so um yeah so i I think they're they're lovely super they're lovely people they're super talented people i think they're great songwriters i think um you know, hearing one song is not enough. I highly suggest you go to Spotify, Apple, Bandcamp, wherever you listen to music and check out their whole album, um, Periscope, which came out last year. And you can find them on Instagram uh, or Facebook as Jatentia Music. And they'll also be on our Spotify playlist, which we'll put in the show notes, but there will be links to all of these um, places to discover their music as well. Yeah, I also just realised I should probably spell Jatentia because it's not necessarily an obvious That's one. why I said everything's going to be in the show notes, ah, people. Okay. So if fine. you haven't got a pen and paper... I won't spell it then. That's fine. No, do we'll it, do on. it. Do it. But when you tried to spell it to me, your your voice went all weird. It was like... <laughs> and I was like, what letter is that? I feel, I feel like there's too much pressure on me spelling it now. Okay, I'm just going to do it. Oh, God, spell it, spell it, spell it. Jatentia. J-I-T-E-N. S H A. So, um, Janice Joplin was born on January 19th, 1943, in Port Arthur, Texas. Um, and as a teenager, um, she kind of didn't really fit in, um, you know, in a small town in, in Texas in the South for a number of reasons and was the target of, of teasing and quite badly bullied because she, she didn't look or act according to sort of what was considered how a girl was supposed to be at that time. She wasn't sort of conventionally pretty, if you like. Um, and she didn't conform to what were sort of the popular girls' fashions of the late 50s. She would choose to wear men's shirts and tights or short skirts. And she also put on quite a lot of weight around her sort of teenage years and had acne. And the kids would call her pig um while others yeah so some some kids some kids would call her pig others there were sort of rumors that she was sexually promiscuous um and also another reason that she sort of didn't fit in was that she was somebody who believed that you know racial integration was right and was quite sort of you know open and uh, and uh, vocal about um equality and this was in a town where there was an active faction of the KKK so she was equally sort of a, a a target and an outcast for those reasons as well. Crikey, Mikey, could no. you imagine? No, <laughs> it'd be awful. I mean, there is there is still racism. Yeah, but like, exactly. You know, if I lived next door to the Ku Klux Klan, like that, 
terrifying. Did you know she was voted? I did. I, yes, I did. I was going to get to that actually. Um, that's that's fine. But we will. We'll, Sorry, we'll, I'll let we'll you come go back on. to it. That was slightly. That was a little Hang bit on. afterwards. So she, um, you know, musically, her she did sort of find a, a a small group of friends who were a bit more sort of intellectual and interested in in the same things as, as her and. They tended to listen to blues and jazz music and admired artists such as Lead Belly, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey and Odetta. So a lot of the same musicians that, you know, Etta James, they're sort of a similar age, aren't they? Etta James is only slightly older than Janis Joplin. So they sort of were were listening yeah. to the same sorts of, sorts of artists. And Would you, Well, Etta James, like, went with her, yeah, so her big record was in the 60s in 1960 yeah so she certainly was 1954 was when she yeah she was certainly she was yeah discovered. she was certainly before Janis Joplin in, in that respect um and therefore also an influence um upon Janis Joplin as well um so you know her and her friends would go to the nearby town of Vinton Louisiana um to go to sort of like local working class bars um and I watched um the documentary on her Janice little girl blue um earlier today and um her friend was saying that she was a bit of a, a liability to, to take into bars because she would sort of start mm. try and start fights with people um and then you know they'd all end up getting in trouble and getting drawn into these fights so she sort of developed a reputation as a ballsy tough talking girl who liked to drink and, and be outrageous from sort of by her senior year of high school really so um she yeah the sort of the bullying that that she experienced kind of continued even into her going to to university in Austin Texas i suppose it was still texas it was still the south you know she was still sort of at odds with the the sort of the norm and the the general way of thinking um so she did meet some some more sort of like-minded individuals and she played in a bluegrass band called the Waller Creek Boys, who just sort of played at, at local um, bars for for beer. But as you mentioned, um, there was sort of a, a situation that happened where a university kind of publication would do this ugliest man on campus vote thing, and they, you know, they thought it would be funny to vote her ugliest man, um, which uh, I think had quite a profound effect on her. I think all of this, all of this bullying when she was growing up um had a pretty profound effect on her and her her way of thinking that sort of you know becomes evident um throughout her life in the way that she sort of acts and and, and performs and mm. and you know sort of you can just tell that that all <laughs> hit her hard and i think plays a part in why she died so young essentially did you know that um she once broke a bottle over the head of jim morrison uh I think I did know that, although I didn't come across it in my research today. Well, it's like basically, I mean, obviously they both liked drinking. Yeah. Lots, right. And they were both at the same party and she just didn't like the way he was really obnoxious and he was making advances on her and she was just like, can you fuck off? And he just kept on and she's like, no, seriously, can you fuck off? And he wouldn't. So she just hit him over the head of a bottle to get rid of him. Legend. Fucking yeah. Yeah, absolute legend. I think that's what's so so interesting and great about her is that, you know, she was constantly kind of 
grew up being constantly kind of bullied and and set odds in it it would have made her life so much easier to just sort of conform and be what people wanted her to be but she just never did she was just totally stuck to her guns and stayed herself yeah. and what she wanted to be kind of no matter what was was thrown at her really i mean even um, after that jim morrison still even greatly admired her and was like what a woman yeah <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what everyone thought about her it was just yeah. like yeah what what a woman basically yeah um so yeah so by january 1963 um i think sort of shortly after this uh ugliest man thing happened she she felt she needed to get away from texas so she and a friend, Chet Helms, hitchhiked to San Francisco to go and check out the kind of emerging music scene there. Um, so her fir- this first time that, that she went to San Francisco uh, proved to be pretty unsuccessful. She struggled to make it as a singer in, in the Bay Area. She played some gigs, um, including a side stage performance at the 1963 Monterey Folk Festival, but her career sort of didn't gain much traction and she really fell into into using a lot of drugs so she was regularly using speed or amphetamines um among other things and she just became so strung out um you know she'd lost loads and loads of weight was just not in not well at all basically um to the point that her friends threw a party to raise enough money to put her on a greyhound bus to send her back to her family in 1965 because they could just see that she was you know heading down a road where she was going to die otherwise pretty much so i just found that's it's quite an just an interesting thing that she obviously did had sort of started to find her people at this point the people who cared enough to to throw a party to raise money to to send her home to be taken care of sort of thing so um in 1965 she went back to texas to to her family in an in an attempt to sort of get herself together and yeah. she did sort of she sort of briefly did she got clean and she sort of tried to live a, a more conventional life for a time. Um, she fell in love with someone who she got engaged to, but he ultimately broke off the engagement, which I think, again, hit her quite hard, sort of like more rejection, more sort of feeling like she, she was never good enough that, um, you know, was never really accepted. So following the, the engagement being broken off um, in 1966, uh, she was recruited by San Francisco-based psychedelic rock band Big Brother and the Holding Company. So, you see, this is where I I read something different. That basically she broke it off with her fiance to join that band, and that's no, what, it's crazy, isn't it? Like the different yeah, stories and things that were out for there. For sure, no, it was him that broke it off with her. So they, she was, you know, she she he went to ask her her father's permission um, to marry her. Um, and then, you know, she was there with her mother planning the, the wedding and everything. Um, but they were living apart, obviously, at that point. And then I think she f- she found out that he was living with somebody else. Oh, no, he was living with somebody else. And he, no, sorry, he wasn't living with someone else. He got someone else pregnant. Crikey. So I think he might have been living with them as well, but was seeing someone else, essentially, and got them pregnant and then broke off the engagement okay, with yeah, her. Okay, yeah, I think that's that's justified. Yeah. You know, you know you're saying about her going um, back to te- Texas, like back to her family? Yeah. I love I love there's an article and it quotes um she even started dressing more conservatively like putting yeah. her hair in a bun. Yeah. I I wrote that I, I what the <laughs> bit I what I what I saw was that she started wearing her hair in a beehive. That was what I saw in my in my research. But... Oh yeah yeah. Beehive but yeah, bun it... it's like <laughs> it's a, yeah. 
essentially that that means you're being conventional now buns yeah. and beehives living a conventional life i agree life. i think a bun is conventional but yeah it's, it's, yeah <laughs> But anyway, I think that that was never going to be for her. So um, it was so Chet Helms, who she had originally um, hitchhiked to San Francisco with, was now managing Big Brother and the holding company. Um, and so sent a friend basically to Texas to go and get her because um, he wanted her to, to sing for them. Um, so she came back and auditioned and they were immediately blown away, I think. And so pretty immediately she was then singing for them. So they, they developed a following in the Bay Area, but it was when they appeared at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, different to the Monterey Folk Festival that I mentioned earlier, the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and specifically um, their version of, of Ball and Chain, which was originally by um, Big Mama Thornton, um, and sort of their performance, and specifically her performance of that song, um, was what really gained them um a lot more attention um and they ended up signing to columbia records um off the back of that that performance basically um but the monterey pop festival obviously the legendary festival which you know is remembered for the first Amer- major american appearances for the Jimi hendrix experience which is where he famously burned his guitar was that performance and the who where they you know wrecked all their instruments and the drum kit and everything i mean they did that other times too but and yeah, that festival also introduced um, Ravi Shankar to an American audience um, and Otis Redding to a mass American audience. So it was a, you know, it's a massive point in time, sort of this festival that brought so many artists to the, to the forefront, including Janis Joplin. Um, and Otis Redding um, was also someone who had a massive influence um, on her. There's in the, in the documentary, there's a friend talking about when they went to an Otis Redding comfort, uh, concert and um, sort of, you know, he could see how totally taken with it um, Janis Joplin was. And she definitely, you know, it took a lot of Otis Redding's, especially performance style, into into what she did. Sort of, you know, down to the way that she would express certain vocal lines and so on. So, um, again, this whole thing of, you know, is it is it right or wrong to see something and be and be inspired by it and think that it's brilliant and in, uh, incorporate it into your performance or not, you know? Well, I suppose with Janis Joplin, um, I mean, again, she's one of those artists where you can hear the rawness break. Like, that's not fake. That's not copy. Well, no, exactly. You know, that's... that's it. I think that there is so much about her that is unique and her own. And I think she... part of that comes yeah. from what she's incorporated from other places. But there's definitely something. I mean, you know, when you hear Janis Joplin, you know it's Janis Joplin, don't you? Pretty yeah, immediately. I exactly. Think. And also, like with her performance style, like you can you can say that she borrowed from. Like I don't think she was consciously on stage thinking, "I'm going to do this, I'm going to do." It. I mean, she was like out of it so much, and just she was so lost in what she was doing. Yes, she was influenced by all of these artists that she felt a connection to, but she had a lot of like fucked up stuff going on outside. Yeah, of, for sure. You know, the, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, which we'll get into um, a yep. bit more. I mean, she, exactly, she at, le- at least at, at least early on, um, according to anyway friends sort of talking about her in that documentary, it was it was rare that she because she you know she got into taking heroin, um, and but it was rare that she would take heroin before going on stage, um, because that's sort of not the right sort of energy for performance, I suppose. So she'd be drinking and so on, but it was more when she came off stage that that 
became more of a thing. But I, I'm going to come back to that um, a little bit later. But um, yeah, so after following the Monterey Pop Festival performance, um, they signed to Columbia Records um, and their first album for Columbia, which was actually their second album they did, Cheap Thrills, was a huge hit, came out in 1968. Uh, within three days, it was a certified gold record, which I have to admit, I don't actually really know what that means. I think that just means it had sold a certain number, right? Ten copies. Be a gold record. <laughs> well, a large number, I assume. <laughs> how many? Find out for me. To the end. I, I, I didn't check this. Find out for You're, me. Find uh, out for how me. Many, how, how many records do you have to sell? Because platinum was a million. Have a gold it? record. So... I think so, yeah. How many do you have to sell for a gold um, record? Ca- ca- you carry on. I'll, I'll be I will. I'm going to carry on. I will. You, you, you research in the background. Um, so, um, yeah, on that album were songs like Peace of My Heart um, and Summertime. Uh, did you know, Angela, that um, Peace of My Heart was originally sung by Irma Franklin, um, Aretha Franklin's older sister? I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know that. Um, that's probably my favourite um, of, of of Janis Joplin's songs. Uh, and when, um, when, I, when did it go gold? Sorry, I need a bit more uh, details. 1968. So, uh, so, the, so what? So does the number change over time then? Anyway, right. So, um, five hundred thousand so yeah. copies. Let's go with five. Okay, so let's just go with within three days they had sold over five hundred thousand. Actually, records. no, that makes sense, doesn't it? So half a million. Uh, yes, God. yes, that makes sense. Yes, yeah, because it's half of what platinum. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. To sum up, <laughs> within three days, they had sold over 500,000 copies of, of Cheap Thrills. Sorry, I have to interject with this right now. You've sent me off researching. <laughs> Sorry, there's a ramble about to happen. Um, did you know there's a status in music called the diamond status? No. The fuck? I was like, what? To reach diamond status, an artist must sell at least 10 million copies of a single or album. Slim Shady was one of the highest selling and all round most successful hip hop artists ever. He, uh, oh, I can't bother to go on about that. But anyway, yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah. Who else has, well, and now I'm interested in who has diamond status. Maybe that can be a, a more of a subject for another podcast. Well, this, this article, because I've just, it was the first results that came up and it was like 15 hip hop artists who've gone diamond. I just never heard of that before. No, me neither. I will look more into that later. Um, so yeah, so Cheap Thrills, you know, helped to solidify Janis Joplin's reputation as a unique, dynamic, bluesy rock singer. Um, and But it was also that, you know, the success was really about her, was becoming more about her than the band, you know. Sort of the reason that Columbia wanted them was, was because of her. And I think that, you know, as per usual, the band probably didn't necessarily get enough credit for what they were bringing to the table but um essentially it was her that that people wanted and so frustration sort of built between her and the band where she felt like they were potentially sort of holding her back professionally because she you know most of the praise was for her and her incredible vocals um and you know they felt stressed that she was taking all the limelight and people were more interested in her and not they weren't getting any credit sort of thing um so Ultimately, it was a difficult decision because she really did see them as a sort of family um, to her, that band. But eventually they decided to part ways. Um, 
and the last time she played with Big Brother was uh, December 1968. Um, and she then sort of, I mean, throughout her career, she's sort of struggling with drugs um, on and off, really. She sort of goes through periods of taking a lot of heroin and amphetamines and, and drinking a lot and then through phases of becoming clean. So um, her her next band were called uh, the Cosmic Blues Band. Um, and they sort of didn't get quite the... They didn't. They never, were never quite what they were supposed to be. If if that makes sense, sort of. They didn't get a huge amount of great, um, sort of press and everything. There was quite a lot of criticism, and the criticism caused a lot of distress, um, for her, particularly. Um, you know, she felt pressured to prove herself as as a female solo artist now in a male dominated industry, um, and so all the criticism that that she was getting quite personally, um, as well she took really badly um and the cosmic blues band sort of had one album and then didn't really go anywhere um they sort of had one tour in europe that that i think went quite well and where things sort of started to click a bit but it sort of dissipated and and didn't come to it what it was supposed to um and she took that failure of that band quite personally i think it you know she was supposed to be the leader of that band in in big brother she wasn't necessarily the band leader um but with the cosmic blues band she was and she didn't really know what she was doing in that role to be honest and so there were a lot of sort of constant personnel changes and that was part of the problem as well um but yeah she really took that that band not not working out as as a personal failure um and that was where her sort of drug and alcohol abuse really reached it, its worst point um and then she sort of took a, another break at, at that point where she went to Brazil and there's like a whole thing of her going to Brazil and falling in love and sort of this whole thing but she went to Brazil and got herself clean um and the the thing was that she sort of like I was saying before where she went through all this bullying and everything I think it really sat inside her even though she sort of acted like she didn't care I think it did sort of hit her on a deep level and when she was on stage and performing, it was like all was right with the world. You know, she was expressing herself. She was doing what she loved. People loved her. There was an audience there cheering her on. But when she came off stage and the audience was gone, she would just be left with herself. And so that's where, you know, one of her friends comments that, you know, they wouldn't take heroin before the shows, but it would be after the show would be when a heroin fix was sort of the the common thing for her. Um, cause when she was on stage, she felt that she was somebody and that she had something to offer. Um, but then when she was off stage, she just sort of felt alone and she would see, you know, all the guys from the band going home with girls and she would be going home alone was sort of a, a comment that she made. Um, so I think she had a lot of sort of just feelings of of rejection from, I don't know, from society, from people she'd loved, from you know, just never feeling that she was good enough, really, as much as she sort of, she sort of did know that she was talented. And when she was on stage, and she was, you know, really feeling the music and really in touch with with what was happening. That was one thing. But the rest of the time, I think she just still felt like she wasn't pretty enough. She wasn't good enough. She wasn't worth anything, you know, because that was what she was sort of told, I think, for, for so many years growing up. And she just didn't really fit in. So I suppose yeah. it was, that's that you feeling, know, isn't it? Of, um, yeah of otherness yeah 
So, um, yeah, she said about about that time, um, you know, when her second band sort of failed, um, she said that was a pretty heavy time for me. It was really important, you know, whether people were going to accept me or not. So kind of exactly what we were saying. And that was an interview she did um, for The Village Voice, which was just four, and she did that interview just four days before um, her death. Um, so... But to, I mean, there was a lot that happened after that point still. So she then had an, another band. Her, her final band was called Full Tilt, the Full Tilt Boogie Band and everything sort of came together again finally at this point. So um, they recorded um, the album Pearl, which um, she did actually write two songs on, um, Move Over and Mercedes Benz, um, which is a, describes a gospel-styled send-up of consumerism. I think she talks about wanting a, a mercedes-benz anyway i'm not sure yes, but um yeah. yeah um so uh yeah that was what so it was during that time they were recording that album staying at the landmark hotel um in hollywood which was just that her and the band were staying there it was just blocked away from the studio sunset sound recorders where they were recording the album um and apparently according to the to the documentary um one of her friends talking she was clean at that time so when they were recording that album and, and things were going well again, she'd gotten herself clean and everything was, you know, really kind of positive for her at that point. She was loving performing with Full Tilt Boogie Band um, in a lot of ways that things were good um, sort of at that point. They'd been up and down, but that was sort of quite a good point for her in a lot of ways. But still on October 4th, um, 1970, she failed to show up for the recording session and the road manager found her dead um, in her room in the hotel from an accidental heroin overdose. Crikey. So I just think it, I just find it, in, I think it's interesting because the way the story always gets told in such like a, a quick washed way of, oh, you know, well, she always struggled with drugs and then she died of an accidental heroin overdose. But she wasn't particularly at a low point at, at, at that point, if you know what I mean. And what her friend says in the documentary is that he can imagine her just, you know, for whatever reason, had a weak moment, I suppose, and just thought, you know, I'll just take it in my room. No one will know that it happened sort of thing. He kind of suggested it was maybe even like a last hurrah of like, you know, I'll do it and then I'll, you know, I'll stay clean sort of thing. There's a a bit in the documentary, uh, a, someone that she was friends with and I think lovers with at one point, this woman, Peggy, um, saying that, you know, she wasn't depressed and they didn't take drugs out of you know, trying to escape. They took drugs because it was fun. They took heroin. You know, it was a fun thing to do. It wasn't something that they were doing out of being depressed, kind of like exactly what you were saying. And I suppose a lot of people would like you to believe that it is just linked to depression. No, I I think, I think, I think there's, I I think with her, there there was definitely an element of, of trying to, to numb, to numb the pain. You know, there's friends talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, she sang the blues and, you know, it was about expressing the pain that she felt. That's sort of what the blues is, isn't it? And that she equally, you know, took heroin to to numb that pain um, in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, it was also a recreational fun thing. You know, things can be more than one thing. 
but um yeah so she she died before the album was was completed but there was there was enough good material there um for the producer to sort of put it together and create an album so the album was called pearl um and it was released in 1971 and it was um the biggest selling album of her career um but yeah sadly released uh a few months after she died um so just as my an interesting ending to take it in a different direction okay uh so she died in room 105 um of the landmark hotel in hollywood yeah and uh many people believe the room to be haunted by her because that's where she'd you know in her death would choose i'm just gonna hang out here don't don't go go back to like not, well, I suppose I do hang out. But, but what this, do I know? What do I know about ghosts? But, I don't know what I'm saying. This, <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> as the authority on ghosts. Because this is my other job. Do. I'm like a fucking ghost hunter. <laughs> well, if you were a ghost hunter, it is a place that you may go because many have. So um, it's it, so the hotel, rather than sort of trying to to hide the fact that she died there, decided to kind of cash in on this a little bit. So. The room has been pretty much so. The, you know, other parts of the hotel have obviously been refurbished and everything, but the room she died in has been pretty much kept as it was. Um, and people go to to stay there to be to stay in the room where Janice Joplin died and to see if they see her ghost. And there's sort of like a there's sort of a shrine to her in there that people have created which has been encouraged by the hotel. So there's like, they Creepy. leave Sharpies and stuff in the room. And so there's- what? I, They leave Sharpies? This is insane. It's, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. So I, there's like a, I found this like podcast of people who, who like stayed in there and there was a video of them getting a medium in there, like reading the room and shit. And they've like, yeah, so there's this cupboard. It's sort of a cupboard, I think, that's sort of become the shrine where people have written notes and everything about her and left bottles of whiskey and- it's all very bizarre. You know but, what? Yeah. Like, can you imagine being the, the ghost of Janice Joplin? You'd be like, can you, seriously, can you fuck off? You've left me, but what am I supposed <laughs> to do with that? I know. I'm dead. I'm a ghost. I can't pick it up and drink it. Yeah. And then I found some <laughs> other article of some girl claiming to have, to have stayed there and that she, what did she claim? She claimed she put a bottle of water in the fridge and then went back to get it and it was covered in slime. As in, you know, ectoplasm or whatever. Ghostbusters, eighties. And, uh, and then she has she has this picture of when she's asleep that there appears to be a sort of Janis Joplin shaped. So she had someone thing. sat in her room just taking pictures of her asleep. I don't know. It's all very bizarre. The whole everything I could find about it was very bizarre. But um, yeah, I just find it odd that the yeah, it's all odd. It's all just very odd, but quite interesting. Did you talking about ghosts? Did you ever watch Most Haunted, which had Yvette I did Fielding not. and Derek Akora? Just during know, those I, times, I know what right? you're talking about, but I never watched it. But so Derek Akora, just just to really summarise what this is about, so they go to houses, they explore if it's haunted. It's all done with the lights off, and they've got like you know cameras that can see in the dark. There's a technical word for that. Um, my brain's not going to be able to say what that is right now. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, they 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 go to these places and they you know they sit for ages and they think they see things and they don't. But Derek Okora had um, someone he spoke to from the past that would visit him, mm-hmm. um, an ancient Egyptian called Sam. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> of course, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> now, but Derek Akora would also take on the spirits of dead people and uh, uh-huh. and and talk about them. Uh-huh. And I heard, and uh, you know, he he would often be quite aggressive in responses to Yvette Fielding, the other presenter in the show. Um, but at one point in a show, he attacked her. And I think it was either like he put his hands around her throat or he slapped her or whatever, but he was like possessed at the time. But it all came out not that long after that he was like just a complete fraud. So he just Shocking. hated Yvette Fielding. Shocking that Sam I know, I wasn't know. real. No, no, but, but the, whole, <laughs> the whole thing of him just basically using it to attack D- that's his mental. co-presenter because he hates her. Oh, my God. Um, I will actually need to... To verify this story, because this is through hearing <laughs> you might through, have made it up. <laughs> through my ex, who was obsessed with um, with with that program, told told me this. So I, I do need to fact check check it. But yeah, he basically, but she apparently believed that he was, and uh, he attacked wow. her during a show. And then it just there was a whole scandal about the um, about him and. But I mean, yeah. When you say it, it's like, is that a surprise? He spoke to an Egyptian, an ancient like, Egyptian <laughs> called Sam. He was, anyway. he was like his kind of little um, rep who would like go right, okay, Derek. Uh, we've got a queue of dead people here from this house that want to speak to you. Line up. I'll let you through one by one, um, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Well, anyway, here's here's my big question though: is given the opportunity, would you would you stay in the room or not? No, I think that's. I think it's a really sad place to go. Yeah, yeah. I'd much rather go visit or stay at something that was like related to a positive part of of somebody who you admire's life, right? Rather than the place where they died. Like. And surely, ultimately, it's going to be one big massive disappointment because you're going to go in the room and go, "It's a hotel room. It's just a room." <laughs> but I don't experience. It's just a really expensive hotel room that hasn't been decorated in decades. You know, it's, yeah, um, for sure. Love it. Brilliant. But anyway, I suppose to, to sum up, not with her haunted room, uh, you know, she was, I just think, such a a unique performer. Um, we sort of changed, you know, what what you could be as a female performer. I think you can say that about her, you know, by not by not being the same as what anyone else had been, you know, not being particularly feminine, singing in, in a way that, I suppose more mainly men were were singing at at that time or not even really sort of a way that was so her own um and not looking or or being like anything that she was sort of supposed to I think that she she probably opened some some doors in in that respect and like you say you know she was so respected by the other men in the scene really for what she was doing um as well which I think was quite unique in a way if you know what I mean so why don't we move on you have some some new music as well I do I've got a really fantastic artist which I discovered through we mentioned loud women in um our last podcast actually uh and I also but I think Paula discovered the artist uh Bruce Cruz through loud women I may have made that up it was a week ago we recorded the show so you know (laughs) She could have said anything, but I vaguely remember her saying something about loud women and the reason why she picked this artist. And and I also discovered this week's artist, which is Lilith I, um, via Loud Women. 
She is a guitarist who writes and performs poignant tales of modern life. She played an absolutely incredible set for Balcony Fest, which you can find on YouTube, and I'll post a link to that um, in the show notes. But she's absolutely incredible. Her name's Lilith I, and this is her song, Quarantine. So that was Quarantine by Lilify, and you can check her out on Spotify. It's Lilith and the letter A-I if you want to, to find her. And also she's on Bandcamp and Music Glue, Facebook and Twitter. And we'll share all of the links in the show. But um, I think she's an incredible artist. Kerry, what did you think? Yeah, no, I, I love her as well. I heard her for the first time on, on Balcony Fest. And yeah, she just really grabbed my attention. Just such a beautiful voice, brilliant songwriting. Um, yeah, I just think that she's great. Don't really know what more to say about it. I just think it's brilliant. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely mix. I knew Paula was watching. I think I was recording a podcast with Paula after that, and I messaged it instantly saying, "You can't play her." <laughs> so yeah, um, it's what we do. We fight. We fight over new artists <laughs> so that we get to play them and and stories um, yeah. of of people. But um, yes, yeah, so I think I think that brings our show to an end so thank you for listening to stories of etta james and janice joplin two fantastic artists and obviously the new bands as well that we featured this evening please do check them all out and listen to our spotify playlist uh if you want us to feature a band or a story drop us an email at rockpoprambles at gmail.com or contact us via social media at twitter at Bug Eye Band or Facebook at Bug Eye Music and we promise to to respond. We might just go, no, that's rubbish. We're not playing that. But um <laughs> you never know. You never know. So mean. So mean, Angela. We'll reply we'll we'll reply more politely than that, but that will be what we'll we remember to we'll remember to reply. Um maybe. Yeah. Oh no, actually, you know what? I do have a shout out for someone. Um this week we were tagged in a post and I'm totally not going to be able to find it now. Um, <laughs> Perfect. No, so um, there was a post on our Facebook page by a guy called Mark who said that he just discovered the podcast and he had basically spent, this was last weekend on Saturday, had spent the whole day just listening to the shows back to back and he was up to the episode I Love You Kerry and he loved the banter and the way that, that that we interact or something like that. And I can't find the actual message, which is really I mean, need to be better planned at this. I mean, when I think about him listening to our voices all day, I just kind of think, poor guy, just listening to us talk shit. He must day. have been doing something like ironing, right? <laughs> so something slightly more interesting than ironing. That's... <laughs> That's what I reckon. <laughs> I think we're a winner, aren't we? That's what we should. If we could, if we could target That's how ads, we should market ourselves. People, listen to us while ironing. <laughs> yeah, while ironing, or if only you could do like digital adverts that were targeting people that right at that moment were doing yeah. the most boring thing on the planet, <laughs> where they're well, thinking. Well, <laughs> listen to rock pot rambles. We make your most boring day to day tasks slightly more interesting. <laughs> Yeah, we're slightly more interesting than the most boring, mundane thing you could think of ever having to do. Uh, watching paint dry, why not just listen to us? <laughs> That's how we rate ourselves. Yeah. Good no, job. We're doing all right. We're doing all right. We're doing all right, Keza. Right, let's wrap it up or we'll, uh, we'll okay, just keep cool. rambling, won't we? Yeah. So um, please do check us out on all the platforms we mentioned and we really do appreciate all the people that are listening um across across the globe we love you we do we do and we really didn't expect this to be a regular thing that we would do uh we didn't think anyone would listen and the fact that that people are listening just actually makes me feel really really blessed warm and fuzzy inside yeah but it also makes me want to do a better job on my research right so that's why i've started reading lots of i mean look i keep saying which is why i've started reading i i have always read books <laughs> but i mean in you know i haven't just learned how to read um no i'm learning new skills during lockdown like reading no um but you know trying to just do a better job on research so yeah 
So if you enjoy the show, you like what you're, he- what you're hearing, um, please do subscribe. It's free. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. And that's it for another week. Over and out.